So longtime listeners to the Triloquy podcast may remember that you have a background in theater mm-hmm. and you insist on ER instead of RE, I guess the good kind of ER, <laughs> theater <laughs> instead of theater. Well, well, why are you so adamant about that ER spelling? Or how, why were you? Well, I always thought it was just less pretentious. You know, <laughs> it was anglicized. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's the only reason. Not not all things that sound so stuffed shirt are actually. I mean, that could be the case for theater. I think that could be the <laughs> the case for sure for organizations like Schubert Club. That sounds pretty stuffy, but they do all kinds of stuff. They're cool over there at Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been cultivating a passion for music and fosters an engaged community of music enthusiasts through concerts, music education, museum exhibits, and student scholarships. More on Schubert Club at schubert.org. Wouldn't you hear Schubert Club and automatically think something that isn't necessarily true. I mean, I think that could be the same for theater RE. Sure. Yeah, there's definitely a possibility just because it's Schubert, you know, and you hear that and you go, oh, classical. Yeah, yeah. But they do all kind of stuff over there. I'll speak a little bit more uh, in a little bit here to what uh, the Schubert Club is doing. But I asked you about theater because I actually went to a show over the weekend. It's been a long time since I've seen a a play or anything, especially since COVID times. But it was really cool to see. I went over uh, with Dell to the Brave New Workshop. We saw something called This Show is Cheaper Than Gas, America on Empty. Shout out to Denzel, one of uh, our colleagues and friends who was uh, in that show. It was was, you know, political commentary and sort of semi-improv, maybe lightly scripted. Whose line is it anyway, if I may uh, compare it to things? Sure, that's fun. It was it was cool. It was cool to see. Did you prefer the more serious roles when you were on stage, or would you have more fun with the more fun, lighthearted, silly sort of stuff? There were some serious roles at the Shelter Belt Theater down in Omaha, Nebraska that I really relished. And that's because I got to be the, the sort of conniving bad guy. Okay. The plotting bad guy. Mm-hmm. I love those roles. So yeah. if you could get people booing you for that, I'll sit through a boo. But what about what <laughs> but but what about your ability to musically perform on stage? Would that would that offer some uh initiate some boos as well? <laughs> I would fold like a flan in a cupboard. <laughs> that, I, that's what was really fun for me to see about this show is seeing folks who aren't you know, singers, sing, singers, R.E. Uh, <laughs> They're but, not you know, leaders. Uh, catching a tune. And, you know, there was a live pianist there. So th- that that was fun. I don't know. I-, I think it's really fun to see people being fun and not taking things so seriously, but doing so artfully, doing so in a way that I can tell there's a lot of skill. I was definitely noticing the projection of the voices that we were sitting up mm-hmm. on the front row. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not something that I often think about, but I suppose that's a part of training as an actor, being able to throw your voice in that way. Right. You have to play to the deaf woman in the back row. Sure. Oh, is that what they say? Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> well, uh, one of the you know other things that I thought was really interesting about this play that I wanted to uh, talk about in our little introduction here is the fact that a Kate Bush track <laughs> made it into this play. And it's really been in the re-zeitgeist. I mean, this this tune, Running Up That Hill, has, thanks to uh, Stranger Things, come back. It's on it's the radio. Life. You said she's made a couple million dollars. 2.3 million. Yeah, off of the, yeah, you go, girl. <laughs> One day when I grow up. what Offer some context around Running Up That Hill the first time around. Were you there for it? Were you a part of the people who were 
taken by this then new song? Keep in mind that this was not a track that made it over pop airwaves in little Omaha, Nebraska at okay. the time that it came so out. So this was more of a right. deep track. So this would be something that we would see if you had MTV or if you watched Friday Night Videos. Shout out to everybody who knows what Friday Night Videos mm-hmm. is all about. Uh, you might have seen it there. So I actually heard it for the first time maybe four or five years after it came out. But then I became a devotee of Kate Bush at that point. I was saying yes, Queen to Kate Bush long before Beyonce came around. Now this is a track that I wish I could hear performed live, even mm. you know, with those full vocals and sure. things. The, sure. the song is definitely new to me, and I don't even watch Stranger Things, but the song has had such a comeback again through radio and even on the stage of this play we went and saw. Mm-hmm. I think that's really a great example of what we mean when we talk about renewed classical music or a renewed approach to classical music. This is obviously, at least in in my opinion, a classic now that, you know, it had such a, a presence when it first came out and even more so now and really sticking. You know, you don't have to listen to an 80s station to hear this track played on the radio. It's right. on the regular top 40 stations. And the I think that's very yeah. notable. That That's incredible for Kate Bush. But she wasn't just a one-hit wonder. No. That w- what are some of the other Kate Bush tracks oh, that my come goodness. to mind? Cloud some Busting. of the classics. Cloud Busting was uh, a fantastic track, but it, the one that always gets me, <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't make it through a performance of this woman's work. Right, you right. Know, because that that just re- <laughs> rips your heart right out of your chest. And you talk about not knowing something is hidden or you know in the moment you said you heard um the the previous track running up that hill a few years after it came out Mm -hmm. you know i have been very familiar with the tune this woman's work but it was only i mean may not three years ago i mean maybe maybe two years ago that i realized it was a kate bush track because we grew up with the maxwell and it's not the original but i would say he did a a pretty damn good job with the with the track Now 
incredibly, incredibly beautiful track. I was reminded of it again, actually, by Brandy Younger. Shout out to Brandy Younger. She has an incredible version of this for harp and electric guitar mm. that just mm. kills. But, you know, of course, you know, me me listening to this reminds me of those Saturday mornings in front of the uh, music videos. I'm a little kid and this is coming along. And there are a lot of folks who probably still think that's a Maxwell track. You know, even if you go on YouTube, you could search this woman's work and one of the yeah. suggested things will be by Maxwell or, right. or or whatever. What what do you think of that rendition considering your, you know, deep love for the original Kate Bush? I'm impressed the notes that he was hitting. Yeah. I, was I, very I mean, moved. I wish I could sing like that. Yeah. But I think that's again sort of the the vibe of what we're trying to go for in that renewed perspective and approach to classical music. Kate Bush is a part of the musical story of of what happened. You know, yeah. there's Beethoven and Mozart and all of those people, and there's also Kate Bush. And I think the resurgence of you know that hit song of hers is that if it wasn't a hit then, it's a hit now. You know, I think that speaks to the classic nature of what's happening. We have Maxwell covering that song, this woman's work, so well. That people think it's his song, it's his. and and there are many you know uh, examples of that. I'm thinking about Whitney Houston and Dolly Parton, you know, with "I Will Always Love You," an, uh, another American classic. I think that's the opportunity that classical music institutions have, really grabbing a new audience with a different approach, with the result being multiple communities, more communities, wider audiences being familiar with the same thing, that orchestral sound, that symphonic sound. Um, but the approach just has to be different. And I think there's a chance there considering examples like these, you know, pop music is different than getting somebody into a concert hall, but that's a lot different. Yeah. But, but, but I still think there are some, some common denominators there just as we've, we've seen here. I mean, do you do you, do you not think there's some common denominators there? Just let's take the song "This Woman's Work." It's a it's a tune that you knew mm -hmm. and have known for a long time. It's a track that I know and love. You know, in a similar way, it came to me different, but we we can both engage but and we have both a conversation landed in a similar space with it. Yeah, that was written for the film "She's Having a Baby," and it was a little bit different because the movie had already been done. So Kate wrote it. Mm knowing you know how it was going to be used and so it's very custom to that film and it's just a heartbreaking moment and um what you were saying before about um finding the common denominator yeah um if i were to come to you with the kate bush version first mm -hmm. do you think it would have landed as hard for you as the maxwell version would you have been as captivated i think in my adult music listening ears in mind yes mm. there's a lot about the maxwell version that i connect with non-musical things that you know uh childhood nostalgia and you know the the sound of r&b at that time and the things that were uh being explored but mm. i think the the composition itself is a good enough composition composition that I would have appreciated the Kate Bush if that if that came to me first. I mean, certainly with my with my ears and my thinking now, maybe not as a twelve year old, but certainly now. Would you have explored further in Kate's catalog? I may have. I may have. And now that I know the name Kate Bush, and there are not one but two compositions mm -hmm. by this classic artist that uh, I can appreciate, 
I will go in more. And then that will inspire me to see, okay, well, who wrote the or who arranged the string quartet? version of x song or the solo piano and right, now we're talking to, now we're talking about what i can include in some of my radio programming and you know what we may use in and out of of triloquy here the so it, it opens up those doors and the institutions have the same opportunity you know? i'm a little surprised that that hasn't been the next evolution i haven't seen any quartet or piano reductions of it done yet mm. i haven't seen that yet I'm sure there's there's some. I mean, I'm sure I could find some on the internet here. But you're right, like the recorded thing, mm-hmm. the Vitamin String Quartet, you know, or plays whoever, yeah. Beatles, and the Kronos. the Modern String Quartet plays, you know, uh, uh, the song Feeling Good. I think I, I put that on one of my programs. Mm. So now it's up to one of these solo pianists or chamber music groups or something to ride on the, you know, coattails of Kate Bush's, you know, reappearance. You know, ain't nothing wrong with riding coattails <laughs> in some cases. Mm-hmm. And, you know, be a part of this conversation. I'm sure you would love uh, on on air, uh, on the radio, to be able to connect Kate Bush's new moment or re-moment to something that you have, a solo piano, a, a full orchestra or something. That, that would be really incredible. But That would be something. Yeah, that, that's just where, where we're trying to get the, the industry to go, to look at the world as it exists today, the way people are reacting to the music of today and even of yesterday as it applies today, and see if some sense can be made out of that for the concert hall. That's what we're here to talk about each and every week here on this Triloquy Podcast. Let's jump in. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 168. To the returning listeners, thank you so much for coming back week after week and supporting this show. We couldn't do it without you. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music, the concept of classical music, and sits it next to stories of today, news of today, music of today, all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing the phrase classical music. For more information, to learn more about the show, listen to past opuses, and to donate, please visit triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your very generous support, support for the Triloquy podcast comes from Schubert Club, who has a number of really cool events coming up in this month of October. It's already October officially. This is the first year, Scott, that I feel like I've been kind of hanging on to uh, summer. There, there are a lot of people, and I've I've been a part of that who just you know welcome in autumn and can't wait to get out of flannel and feel a little bit of cool air. And while the cooler air, I I really do appreciate, especially with the way these utility bills run here in Minnesota. I'm telling you, like it's something else. You know, they will charge you an arm and a leg just to have a little bit of air conditioning. Anyway, this is the first year in a while that I have kind of been hanging on to summer a little bit, and now that it's October. Can't deny it anymore. No you're, more fighting. You're going pumpkin spice? We're here. I'm not going full pumpkin spice, <laughs> but you know, I, I'm, I may put on a, a little light autumn wrap or something. I don't know. <laughs> you're going cider spice. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Schubert Club has a lot uh, coming up in this month 
of October, including a free courtroom concert featuring Mill City String Quartet. There is a virtual concert that's revisiting sound sculpture, which was uh, uh, played a big part in the Schubert Club's uh, opening up for this season. On Monday, October 24th, we have Accordo. And then, as I mentioned last week, something that I'm particularly excited about is the October 25th Kids Jam featuring a celebration of Haitian cultural heritage. You can find more information on everything that the Schubert Club has going on at schubert.org. I also want to send a special shout out to the American Composers Orchestra. We have a gala coming up. What's the fanciest sound? Uh, Maybe the natural is the fanciest sound. Mm -hmm. We have a gala (laughs) coming up uh, next week, so I'll be back in New York. And there is an after party, a gala after party that I hope anyone and everyone who is in New York, uh, if you're going to be around, Come and hang out at the after party. It's going to be open bar. It's going to be appetizers, desserts, and you get to hang out with really cool people like Garrett McQueen. So you can find out more information on how to get tickets for the ACO Gala after party at AmericanComposers.org. Um, I have a, a, a lot of shout outs this week. I want to give a, a shout out to the Minnesota Orchestra. A couple of weeks ago, uh, you were talking about going down to New Orleans for the public radio conference and you got to meet Dr. Louise Toppin. She gave you a big, strong hug mm. around your neck. Well, uh, Louise Toppin will be here performing, um, well, hosting a concert uh, by the Minnesota Orchestra. Is going to be conducted by Kencho Watanabe, another uh, person who I know listens to the podcast. So shout out to uh, Kencho. Hey. And it's going to uh, feature a whole bunch of uh, really incredible artists and six works new to the orchestra, many of which, I think even all of which, by Black composers. So mm. I'm going to be there. Again, we talk about what's going to get us, what's going to get people in the concert hall. That's what gets me in the concert hall. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to see. I'm not going to see Beethoven 5. I'm not going to see, you know, Mozart 40 or Mozart 40 win. I'm going to see that. Right, okay. Right. So anyway, shout out to the Minnesota Orchestra. Uh, can't wait to go and uh, check out that. Shout out to Louise Toppin. Shout out to each and every one of you listening. Lots of great music coming up in the second movement. Third movement guest is Brian Raphael Neighbors. But for now, we are going to jump into movement one. All right, speaking of naturals, I have a couple quick naturals that I want to just cover as we get started in this first movement. Me too. A lot of interesting feedback from last week's conversation of booing. Same. So let me let me say this. I'll offer this this natural. It's not especially so in the second movement, I'm going to talk about a um a choir a choral concert I went to. So after I went to the theater, we went me and Dell went straight to this choir concert. Anyway, when I was sitting there listening to this beautiful music, I was thinking about our conversation and I was like, "Well, I don't want anybody in here just booing and disrupting my experience, but at the same time, they're singing about social justice. The pieces of music were so uh, timely and relevant to boo the performance would be to boo Black Lives Matter or to to boo, what else were they talking about? Climate change mm-hmm. or awareness about um, uh, immigrants and, and people who, who come here, you know, leaving violence and X, Y, and Z. So in my mind, that is what is being booed. So if we're sitting there listening to, well, what's a choral piece that handles Messiah? If we're sitting there listening to that and somebody starts booing, my attitude is not going to be the same. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to just act all ruffled because someone is booing Handel. So mm-hmm. for me, 
that is a bit of the difference. And that's where I was coming from last week in the conversation. It's not that I just want to completely disrupt everybody's experience, but when it comes to this music we've heard over and over again, and if that is someone's reaction, I think my point was we just need to pay attention to that sort of reaction. Sure, sure. Um, I had quite a bit of interaction as well. And where we kind of landed was we're talking about the difference between um, engaged critique of the music in real time yeah. and disruption, sure. all out disruption. And, and that's a different conversation, disruption is. Um, also, somebody wanted to know, uh, they were talking about clapping. Why were we arguing over the booze? That was a good one. <laughs> Uh, and another one was uh, pretty frank too. Nobody wants the music they like to be disrupted. That's true. So there, that's uh, true. And like there you go. It reminds me of when you're, you know, in the airport or on a plane. Only your curry smells good. That's right. I have to think about that more on these salad. airplanes. Yeah, your egg salad <laughs> is delicious. I'm sure, but it's turning my stomach. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I thought it was a, a useful, useful conversation. The last comment that I wanted to pass along was. Um, people pointing out that a walkout would be more effective than booze and jeers and as far as critique. That. Yeah. that is cold. If you turn around and you see your audience way diminished after the intermission, you don't smell the smokers coming back in. Right. <laughs> it's like, ooh. But don't you agree that there has to be some sort of vocal right before the walkout? There has to be some, huh, and you get up and walk out. Or, you know, so. <laughs> there may be, sure. <laughs> or, or a giant, <sighs> and just walk out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> ooh. Like, as the music starts to get up and walk out at that, ooh. Because you're like, oh, y'all oh, y'all are playing this Mozart symphony. Oh. Oh, is this Beethoven symphony? I didn't look at the program. And the conductor okay, says, you don't want to stay to hear the contrapuntal tour de force that is Mozart 40? Okay, but see, that's the problem. <laughs> Do not address me from the stage because now you now have opened now, up the communication. Now, so now we're I'm talking a part of the show. <laughs> about engaged critique of the music in real time. Anyway, yes, that's great. But and and you know, shout out to that article as well. I think it is something to think about being shushed in concert spaces and the policing of it and and, and all it this really sort of thing. it really got more activity. It got more commentary than I was anticipating. So I'm going to throw this out for next week. Does your toilet paper go over or under the roll? Right in. Let us know. <laughs> and I'll tell y'all right now, Scott has his toilet paper wrong. <laughs> I've been to your bathroom. I know what way you put it and and you're wrong. You've never had a cat in the bathroom, have you? <laughs> okay. Okay. That's a good point. That's a good point. All right. Uh, and then one more quick natural that I want to throw out there. So a few weeks ago, we were talking about the fact that Solange Knowles was having a piece of music premiered by the New York City Ballet. Well, it happened. And, you know, the uh, social media was doing everything. And uh, Beyonce was there and she captioned, I'm reading, I saw it on Instagram, but I'm reading here from the uh, LA Times. I'll have it uh, uh, put in the description of this. Beyonce uh, put in the caption of her Instagram post, my beloved sister, there are no words to express the pride and admiration I have for you. You are a visionary and one of one. The piece you composed is phenomenal. I love you deep. Might I suggest you don't fuck. With my sis, whereas of Beyonce. And then, of course, Solange was also posting photos. It was really cool to see um, photos from Solange of like scores of, of music on music stands and stuff. That's. <sighs> That's where we can go. Mm. That's mm -hmm. really what the genre and what the ecosystem 
could be all the time. I wish, of course, I could have been there. It was a sold out crowd. It was all sorts of um, celebrities there at the New York City Ballet. I'm sure a lot of people who have never been there before or wouldn't have been there otherwise. Mm -hmm. An exciting time. I just I love that it's happening. I want to see more, more of it. it. Yeah. What um, you know, we talked about theater a little bit, so let's keep it with ballet. Can you think of a an artist, one of your favorite artists? If you found out that they scored a ballet, oh, you you need to get off work on the calendar. You need to tell you know, you're going to tell me. Actually, I have to go to the ballet this Monday night, so I I don't know if I can record. We're going. Is is there that artist? for you that you would just flip the world over to go see their ballet? Uh, maybe somebody along the lines of David Byrne. Sure, sure. Or Annie Lennox, mm. if she did something I would line up for And it for seemed that. like that's something that she would do. Th that wouldn't yeah. be too far out of what you would expect. Um, and I have to say that after that release that Bjork put out, I would love to see oh, yeah, the, spect the spectacle that she would put together because, you know, there's, there's things about her aesthetic that I find a little bit disturbing. You know, they kind of like, Ooh, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about it. And she probably likes that. And I'm not, I, yeah, I'm, I'm saying that the a shock value is part of it yeah. for sure. But just imagine what she would put up there. Yeah, that would sure. be incredible. Yeah. Anyway, shout out and congratulations to Solange. I hope we see more of it. I mean, mm -hmm. the we're going to talk about uh, Lizzo a little later. You know, the the Lizzo concerto or the I don't know flute gate. There, there, there are so many opportunities mm -hmm. that are out there for the industry. But anyway, we're getting uh, going with a new set of accidentals this week. We're going to start with you this week, Scott. You got something oh, are from. We? Uh, yeah, I was looking at the, the Guardian. Yeah, theguardian.com. And what accidental is this going to get? Uh, I want to give this one a natural as well because I'm, you know, this is this is the beginning of a track record. Yes. For a venue called South Bank Center over in the South UK. Bank Center RE, by the way. Right, so you can't tell me that that does, that isn't like a little bit bougie. The the oh, for sure. oh yeah, definitely. okay. You're just not, just yeah, so I'm not yeah. okay. <laughs> so I sent this to you, and I wanted you to pay attention to the headline in particular. It's my age that's the talking point, not that I'm black. Mm -hmm. Talks Dada, the South Bank's head of classical music. Do you buy it? A part of me does because one of the things that I've had to deal with a lot is elder reluctancy over what me, the youngster, is bringing in. And you know, at at thirty five years old, I'm you know I'm not just a complete spring chicken anymore, but I'm still in right. many of of my spaces seen as the the younger the person who is you know doing all that sort of thing. And you know, it pisses me off because, and this is not about me, but you know, you're you're calling me. The upstart, but I mean, let's 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 compare checking accounts if you want to do that, and which one of us, you know, <laughs> made it uh, as an entrepreneur and is mm -hmm. doing, you know, so any, so that 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 triggers me getting into my ego. So that, you, know you know that I wasn't calling you right. that. That's but but but, but, I, but I think that's a part of it, and and what talks Dada is talking about. Yeah. You know, you see a a person who does not have gray hair, a person who is not fifty or sixty years old, and automatically doubt what they're doing. So yeah. So, so um, the lead is with a new. Season opening this weekend, the South Bank Centre's 32-year-old leader <laughs> talks about how he's shaping the venue to reflect classical music 
today. The magic of live music and the challenge of keeping the lights and the heating on. Mm -hmm. Because you know that they're in uh, all sorts of, uh, they're having all sorts of issues in the UK over energy costs. That's one of them. But he's talking about what his vision is. Now, th this is a venue. Yeah. And one of the things that immediately came to my mind is like, you can have great plans if you're managing a venue. Do How much charge do you have over the ensembles that are coming through? Because there's big names. Yeah. Chinnakee was mentioned. Mm -hmm. And uh, London Philharmonic come through and play the center. So how much charge does a venue have over what the orchestra brings to the stage? I think they have a lot. I can't speak to South Bake Center, but I do know that Carnegie Hall for example, doesn't just have anything up in there, mm. you know? So there, there is a lot of uh, opportunity, I think, for someone like Talks Dada to say, okay, if you're going to perform here, you're going to have to bring at least one this, or you're going to have to make sure that you're addressing X, Y, and Z. I think those rules can be put into place. I mean, I've, I, I almost would venture to say I've seen it happen. I mean, when you were down there in, in Omaha with the shelter belt, was there nothing in place or could anybody just come up in there and do anything? Um, when I was just visiting or when we started? When you started. Oh, when we started. Yeah, that, that we were taking anybody, <laughs> you know, because we were just trying to get content up. So trying I to get shows. So, so I guess the difference is the financials, you know, the, mm -hmm. the South Bank doesn't necessarily have to beg people to come. I mean, they certainly don't have to beg people to come. People sure. are begging to play there. I don't know. My point is, I, I think that there are definitely rules that can be put over a house that can impact orchestral programming. But he says that he is optimistic in the face of all of these financial issues, the COVID shutdowns, Brexit was an issue for them. But he says, what I'm seeing is that there is an appetite for change still there. There are some things that we've done I know other organizations want to do too. And he's talking about um, presenting classical music as, as it is today and telling the stories trying to uh yeah trying to tell a lot of different stories to the audience all at once mm -hmm. of course for some people for others imagine that you've never been to a classical music experience before you pick up our brochure there's 185 events in there how do you make sense of that part of that is his job to help them make sense of that working really closely with the resident orchestras and the question that i had from that again he says imagine you'd never been to a classical music experience before from your perspective is it more of an issue of getting people who've never been there or trying to re-engage people who have some idea or or proximity i think it's a different conversation to say hey you have never experienced this thing. Let's bring you in versus the folks who know the the New York City Ballet or the Met right. Opera Orchestra or whatever. They know these things exist, but they're just not going to go because they don't see themselves in it or, or they don't think that it'll be something that they'll feel engaged by. Do you think that's more of the issue? or They are or going what? to, with a new listener, they are going to be wrestling every other barrier that the person who has just broken off has already been through mm. meaning the idea that it's elitist or that you have to have some certain level of education to get it mm -hmm. you know that it's this fine thing that needs to be up on a pedestal you get where i'm coming yeah. from people have all these uh preconceived notions yeah 
And one of the quotes that I pulled here, you kind of grinned and raised your eyebrows at. One of his quotes was, when we talk about adding in new things, meaning you know, changing the landscape of this music, yeah. the perception is that, the, that what was there before has therefore been discarded. It's possible to embrace all of these forms. And I went, I have been trying to say something similar. But how do you... Oh, all right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You've been trying to say something similar. Yes. I have been trying to say something similar because um, the, you wouldn't throw out all of Shostakovich, would you? You wouldn't throw out all of, um, you know, just because Samuel Coleridge Taylor sounds like the music that was being created at the time, mm -hmm. you'd still program that because it was a black composer. Sure. My point is, why are we so averse to having the conversation of what takes the back seat? We can't add without subtracting. That's just common. Right. I mean, that, that's just common sense. So why are we so averse to that conversation? What needs to be moved to the side? Yes, let's add all of these things, but we can't add those things and, and actually mean it, in my opinion, if we're not addressing what gets put to the side. Agreed. I think that conversation is never had. Which means to me that if you have something on your program that is a clunker, meaning, uh, <laughs> you know, some uh, little known piece by a well-known composer. So, right. You know, the, the, it, 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 this is going to get some hits, but what, what you would refer to as a filler. Yeah. Right. Instead of having a filler, make it a banger that gives context and then a show so, full of bangers right so but what what i'm saying is is that if you have that that classic piece you know from the let's just say it from the canon yeah along with something have it give context because you and i talk about threads that you can follow yep. into what we call pop or country or whatever which is just american classical yeah but if you can find that thread and that context we're talking again about a common denominator. Somebody who might go to an all canon concert takes a chance on something that only has half of what they would normally listen to. Yeah, yeah. See where I'm coming from? Yeah. And again, I, I don't see what's so wrong with just completely flipping the script. I mean, why are we really, why are we just, you know, putting our toe into the pool? You know, and, and I can't wait to get to the triloquy this week because there's some actual numbers that have come out. So, you know, the other part of my feeling, just to preview what we'll talk about in the final movement, we're not talking about the fact that half of the music that's being played out there is, you know, by uh, dead white European men. And, you know, half of the, the music is from the so-called canon. We're talking over 90% of the music, yeah. you know, yeah. that's being performed. Is, is and, and again, not to put the car before the horse, but that's the other part of the feelings that I come to that conversation of, oh, we don't need to throw everything out. You know, I, I'm, I, I push back on that because, again, we need to talk about what's being taken away because there's an overwhelming, overwhelming majority of the tradition that has continued to, you know, be centered in all of these places. And that's that's where I think the actual work is determining what we delete for the sake of the new. There, there's one other thing I wanted to uh, pull from this article. It says here, moreover, being a decade or two younger than the rest of the boardroom doesn't make 
Dada, an outsider. He says, no, I'm an insider. I spent so much of my teenage years practically living in the concert halls. He started learning violin at age eight. He will go on to study viola and arts management at the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. That's, Scott, where you know, a lot of my frustration comes in oftentimes because, you know, it's one thing sort of being gaslit or pushed to the side because you're younger. But on top of that, especially uh, in in arenas like radio, you know, yeah, not, yeah. not specifically performing arts, you have people that, you know, consider the the person with the music school training and the experience, the radical or the outsider when everyone is there for that. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, having professionals specifically in radio with that radio background, the radio degrees, I think that's very important. I also think folks with actual experience in the field can offer just as much. It's different things. And maybe folks like us will have to, you know, undergo different sorts of training and and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, I can say Rachmaninoff as well as you can, and I'm as familiar with his repertoire as you are, especially considering the fact that I've actually played a lot of the music. How do you engage that conversation? And maybe we can take it away from just classical uh, radio specifically, but the person who is trained in radio versus the person who has overwhelming experience in the genre that the radio station platforms do mm-hmm. you do you see that as uh, a, a, an equal trade or what it's an interesting alchemy shout out to bill jenks who is uh, a good friend of mine and at kvno he was uh, brought in as the music director and eventually became program director but he was a conductor and cellist hmm. got brought into the omaha symphony as assistant conductor uh they they laid him off from that and he had to get a gig <laughs> yeah it happens but here's the thing is that you know, like you, you'll back me up here. Not every musician can jump up and rock a microphone. Oh, absolutely not. So, uh, not every host can jump off the mic and go over and play the cello. Few, fewer of them can mm-hmm. do that than the converse. Is is the point I'm, I I like to make? You know, not to put one above the other. But I see what you're saying. There has sure. there has to be some some respect for that. Um. Anyway, that's that on that. Anything else? Shout out to. No, I, Mr. Dada. Yeah, I just want to. I just want to say good. Uh, good for you. Good luck to you. I'm look. I'm looking forward to see what he does because, you know, over in England they have a similar history as ours, but they are not <laughs> uh, as, as beholden <laughs> to the change as we are. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, ho- uh, hoping for the best uh, for Tox Dada as he takes the reins over there in England at the uh, South Bake Center. You found some concert program or something. That was an example of of some of the new things that they're doing. You uh, you cited performances of music by uh, Jesse Montgomery and um, Coleridge Taylor and those folks, right? And they paired it up with uh, the Paris Symphony of Mozart and uh, then Beethoven, the Violin Concerto. But see, the thing is that what got me though was the title was a fresh take on Beethoven's Violin Concerto, <laughs> and I'm like, go on, do tell. You're like a fresh take. Yeah, it's a a 16 year old violinist, so I'm 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 not I'm not sure what that means. I do love that piece. I, I love Beethoven's Violin Concerto. There's some beautiful bassoon writing in it. I, mm. I love the violin part. We've also done it over and over and over and over again, but. If we if we there halfway there with Jesse Montgomery and Samuel Coleridge Taylor, I, I suppose that's more than they were doing, you know, mm-hmm. twenty years ago, even ten years ago. 
So yeah. we're going to transition out of this accidental with uh, an excerpt from one of those pieces. This is the Dance Nedra by Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Again, R-E. Maybe the theme this week is R-E versus E-R. <laughs> mm, interesting. Uh, anyway, here's a little bit of uh, the uh, Dance Nedra from the African suite of Samuel Coleridge Taylor to get us to our next accidental. Triloquy. Listen, what is the difference? Well, I'm not going to ask that question. How do you approach brushing up against the line in the classical repertoire when it comes to words like N E G R E? You know, and yes, this was a, a black composer. There are works by composers who are not black who have written works with subtitles dance necra and 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 that sort of thing yes the word means black it also sounds like something it does and, with, and within the context of an art form where we have barely even heard this music before in the first place you have to double take i mean surely that is something that you think twice about when you come upon this on your playlists and in your presentations indeed and sometimes like if not in this particular instance but sometimes i'll find out if i can use the translation instead you know if that's if that gets me out of something uh -huh. but you <laughs> yes. know but there's been people who have challenged me when i say um next we're going to hear a suite of negro spirituals they want to know why i use that and i always write back because that's what it's called yeah that's the that's the title genre. that's the yeah and it's on this page so that can get you out of it um the 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 one that I'm having a lot of trouble with lately though is Roma. You know what we yeah. substitute that for, mm -hmm. and um, that doesn't always work, especially right. when you have a piece called Zagunavisen. Right, <laughs> right, right. And again, back my, back to my point, we don't talk about what we need to take away. So how about we take away the things where we have to toe the line and or and twist ourselves, and, right? Twist yourself into a pretzel trying to find out a way not to, you know. Anyway, yeah. Um, you know, Kachaturian, you, you know, the composer, um, Adam Kachaturian. Yep. I'm pretty sure it was him. He wrote a, a piece and he straight up said, nigger dance. Oh, no. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, let's not talk about what we're deleting, right? Let's just. <laughs> that back, one can go. Back, back check me on that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was out there. Anyway, chasing the rabbit off the trail. All right. We got one more accidental um, from me. And I'm actually going to give this one a sharp because. It's good to see conversations of equity and diversity in Western classical music on 
websites that aren't necessarily music related or music centered. So I'm reading from the root.com headline. Why are there so few black orchestra musicians? I'm reading here. It says with black musicians dominating the airways across genres, crooning to sell your auto insurance during commercial breaks and even headline and Super Bowl halftime shows. Here's looking at you, Riri. It's more than obvious that there is no shortage of black musical talent in this country. According to a diversity study published back in 2014 by the League of American Orchestras, only 1.4% of orchestra musicians are black. We know what you're thinking. How is this even possible when Prince played at least 25 instruments by himself? Exactly. So why does it appear so hard to find black musicians to fill orchestra seats? And has there been any increase in this grim figure from eight years back. I think there's a lot just in the opening of this piece. First of all, we have cultural competency at play because they're acknowledging that black music is everywhere except for this one little space. I think that's very important to note. And when they talk about how ridiculous it is that less than 2% of orchestral musicians are black, no shade. I'm not even going to say any names, you know, to emphasize the extent to which there is no shade. They didn't call out. That's ridiculous when you have violinists like blank or pianists like blank. They went straight to Prince and cited that he was a multi-instrumentalist. So, you know, obviously there is black instrumental talent out there. What do you think about that approach? I think it would have been a very different conversation if this article said, 1.4, that's ridiculous when you have, like I said, violinists like X or pianists like X. Or Andre Watts. You know, they, yeah, yeah, and see, see, I said I wasn't going to say any names because I'm not trying to compare musicians. But Uh anyway, I just think that it's very notable that they make the point of how ridiculous that number is by going outside of what most classical music professionals would jump to when they talk about the issue is not a lack of talent. They jump to Prince. What, What do you, what do you think about that sort of, Maybe I should say so-called outside Mm. approach to that conversation. It's inevitable. Yeah. It's inevitable because you're starting to get members of orchestras, you know, that are are, are getting seats now, you know, that are starting around your age and all the way upwards of mine. Yeah, even younger than me. What do you think they were listening to in their cars driving around? Yeah, driving to the audition. Yeah. (laughs) Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Prince. Stevie Wonder. Mm -hmm. All of these artists that... Could very well be up there on stage. Aretha, Aretha Franklin sang Nessun Dorma. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, one of the things that you have to point out, though, is that Prince uh, had a very musical home life. Yeah. And when he started studying in high school, his teacher kept him engaged, not by teaching him classical pieces. It was by what he heard on the radio and helping right. him what he heard around the home. And that's how she kept him engaged. And that is something that the article points out is that you can't blame uh, a um, a school or academy or something like that, a pipeline, right? Because right. that all of a sudden means that the orchestra doesn't have any, that now they're out of the conversation. They don't have any say in it right? right. Uh, because of that fallacy of that pipeline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think is going to be the impact of the issue of, a lack of diversity and equity in classical music becoming more mainstream, more widespread. Again, I'm bringing this in because I think it's interesting that this is coming from the root. If you have the run in the mill, you know, person calling the concert hall, the opera house, the radio station saying, okay, I'm just not realizing that it ain't no black 
representation, X, Y, Z. You know, do, do you think that is the tidal wave that arts institutions need to begin to really, to a radical degree, shift things over, getting the pushback from the general populace? It's interesting that you ask that question because uh, I almost brought this article in. Um, this one. This, this very article. But I didn't because I thought you would say, how many times have we covered this very issue? And you see now, wait. But but you were feeling that as well. Right. But that's a thought that you're having. Right. About I'm me. Like, that we, means you're thinking it too. <laughs> exactly. And and then it started to I I could back myself up because I did a search, and uh, so this article that you're talking about came out a day ago. Why is American classical music so white? That article came out in 2019. Mm -hmm. Lack of diversity in top orchestras remains a major challenge. July 13th, 2018. Yep. Scroll on down and there's here's one from 2020. Here's one from 2020. I mean, the, we've been having the conversation. So the, the, the radio special that put me on was 2017 when I did one down in Knoxville. So right. yeah, it's, so, it's been happening for a long time now. So maybe we're hitting a point of saturation where the realization comes. I don't and know. And I think it's very interesting. It's it's such a moment of learning for me to sort of accept the fact that it's taken almost 10 years of just hammering that same nail yeah. for things to begin to, to happen. I mean, maybe 10 years from now, the karma hopefully 10 years from now the conversation will hit, will have evolved to the point where we're not you know c citing these same statistical numbers or you know uh citing these same issues but it will be that repetition that gets us there and i don't know that that makes me feel a little uh justified mm -hmm. in, in the way that i sort of feel like i'm beating my head against the wall yeah. that the repeti the repetition is resulting in, in the widespread awareness about this issue. They say that it takes five to 10 years for someone to donate to uh, a uh, like a service or something that they use. So, mm -hmm. so like for a public radio station, an orchestra, a museum or whatever, it takes five to 10 years of regular use before they become members or yep. make a financial contribution. So maybe that's what we're seeing here. So does it, wait a minute, so, so does it start over if, if you don't return? So let's say I go to the concert hall for a year, and then they start leaning on Beethoven again, and I'm gone. The next time I come back, has the countdown started over? Probably. I think you're <laughs> probably going to be more reluctant. I mean, because from, from what you're saying, I think there's something in that. You have to be able to hold on to these right. audience members for five to ten years if you're going to get their money it is for their genuine support. exponentially harder to bring on a new listener than it is to maintain a current one. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the people, I think all of the people uh, interviewed and, and cited uh, in this article, uh, with the with one exception, uh, with the exception of Ann Hobson Pilot, I'll talk about her in a second. Uh, these folks are um, uh, the founders of the Black Orchestral Network. So you, you know, we're talking about um, yep. Alex Lang and uh, Jen Arnold, who have both been on the Triloquy podcast. We Titus Ort, uh, Titus, yeah, David Norville, there, uh, uh, David Norville, Shea Scruggs. He, he's a homie. He hasn't been on uh, the Triloquy podcast, um, but he's here. And something that uh, he's quoted as saying, I think, is very important. Uh, Shea Scruggs says, "To say we need youth music programs, or it's happening at the conservatory level, basically to frame challenges around diversity in a way that absolves orchestras from being part of the problem." is an issue that's the point I, yeah that's the quote i wanted to bring up yeah, yeah. I, I think that's so poignant because yeah. it'll be it'll we'll, we'll jump so quickly into okay well we got to get into the music education or, or creating the classics for kids mm -hmm. or, or whatever but the grown ass talent <laughs> of black people is out here right now
you know and i think that's really again as as shay said there what orchestras have to come to terms with you have the choice to hire diverse to change these numbers for us to be done with this conversation or not and they're just not and of course they talk about the blind audition process uh in in this article how at the end A of lot. the day it isn't really blind and yeah. but I, I think the point is that just doesn't work that that's it, it doesn't work toward equity and diversity mm-hmm. anyway so i mean that that's that's my big big takeaway from this i'll i'll have this in the um in the description for y'all to take a look at i will uh though go down to the comments <laughs> before we we leave this because you know the story is always That's in the comments so this is what i want to share someone uh who is uh later gator on on this website that that's how they've uh, signed this they say here we're not in orchestras because it costs way too much money and they don't want us there plus plenty of kids in other countries have this built into their upbringing so a lot of foreign-born white musicians are competing for the same spots they are much more welcome to join the fray than anyone black is typically mm-hmm. unless all that changes we ain't coming anytime soon. And there's a part of me that feels like we're not missing out on much at the end of the day. I mean, yeah. that is that is a statement. You know, I think as the conversation blooms and extends to um, audiences, to folks who are, I, I tend to call them the uninitiated, you know, folks who didn't go through music school and, you know, just folks, mm-hmm. just, just people out, mm-hmm. outside of this field. The more that the conversation includes those people i think the more we're going to have to take a look at what are we fighting for because you know y'all can just expect me to say i'm not you know here to listen to the the same old schubert symphony or whatever but you know they really aren't you know even from a curiosity point of view it's only about yeah. You know, 15 minutes worth of that that you're going to listen to before you start looking at your watch yep. or wanting to get your phone out. Mm-hmm. Do, do you do you consider that uh, a variable that will have to be considered in the future? Folks who don't that. know what we're fighting for in the first place. Why are y'all fighting to get on that stage? Sure. Sure. No, I think that's definitely part of it. But um, uh, more so of the the music on stage, though, because I think that uh, the membership of the orchestra will follow if you have meaningful change in what you're playing, mm-hmm. don't you think? Yeah. I mean, again, I think that's why programming always is going to be a part of the conversation because, look, the the education of oh, becoming curious about classical thing, I think it sort of played out. That's a huge barrier, let's, though. Let's, let's get music that folks will enjoy hearing on the stages, you know? And if not, you know, the specific pieces of familiar music themselves community composers or folks who will bring a crowd with them into the into the audience just something other than just the same old same old and you know mm-hmm. i think that part mm-hmm. of the conversation is going to grow the more public the conversation becomes anyway more on that in the description if you want to read that from the root i really appreciate it uh, again like i said seeing this conversation move over into non-traditionally western classical spaces so one of the uh, musicians uh, who was interviewed and uh, cited in this article is ann hobson pilot she's a harpist who became one of the first 
black musicians in an American orchestra. Maybe maybe the first black woman to get in one. I'm not remembering, but um, she spent uh, she famously spent a, a bunch of her time with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. She became the first black musician to be hired there in 1969, um, and you know has has grown to be a legend. I've had the opportunity of meeting Ann Hobson Pilot. I actually uh, gave a, a speech. Uh, when uh, the Gateways Music Festival offered her the Trailblazer Award. So I got to present the award. You know, uh, a woman with so many stories and so much experience and a lot of chops as mm, well. Mm-hmm. She got fingers. I remember one of the uh, recordings that I used to play all the time at my first radio job in Knoxville uh, was her take on the harp concerto by Alberto Gina Stera, uh, Ann Hobson pilot with the English Chamber Orchestra conducted by Maestro Isaiah Jackson. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this uh, Gina Stara harp concerto to transition us into the second movement. Hit it. about active harp i think you know again as we're talking about the uh, the so-called uninitiated maybe maybe i need to get a better word than that but i feel like most people they will hear the word harp and think of angelic soothing things you know but the harp is much more than that i'm a, i'm a fan of the active sort of angular harp playing. define I think active fun. harp playing kind of, kind of like what we just heard so not so much of the um, Glissando. the glissandos and all of those things, but some real melodic playing and some accompaniment that's again angular is the word that's coming to mind. I think mm. it's a vibe, and I think it's a different um, view of the harp than we than we typically get. I mean, but I, I don't know. It, it seems like if you w- happen to play a harp piece, it probably wouldn't sound like that based on just the way that we've treated the repertoire. Maybe not anyone's particular programming decisions, but I think the harp is one of those instruments that we've put into that cherub, angelic, soothing cubbyhole and forgotten that so many composers wrote different things for that instrument. Yeah, and there was uh, quite a few of them that kind of approached the harp like Franz Liszt approached the piano. Right. They beat the hell out of that thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But. Yeah. That never comes across my playlist. <laughs> uh, I know you're going to uh, bring in some music uh, to help celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month, but sort of as a segue, again, the harp piece that we just listened to was by Alberto Gina Stera. I used to argue with the folks on email so much about that because they would tell me, well, actually, it's Hina Stera. Do, do, no. you, have a, do you have guidance? From your radio yes. profession on why we say Gina Stara. Yes, because he preferred the Catalan pronunciation of so his he was, name. He was, co- he was colonized. And, oh, 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 oh. Huh. Okay, okay, he wanted the European. That. He wanted the European. So what does that mean? You see? I, no, I hear what but, you but say. We, but we're we going to respect his colonization. Um, <laughs> it's important to respect an artist's preference. Yes, it is. 
And we're going to respect the artists who we're sharing with y'all here in the second movement. Scott and I are going to talk a little bit about some of the music we've been spending some time with. I I, I pre-promoted you a little bit. Hispanic Heritage Month. Take it away. Right. I wanted to hit on this piece of music because when this podcast airs, the day before it, um, October 4th, is the official premiere date of a piece called Concierto del Sur, written by Manuel Ponce. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Ponce was one of these guys that had a deep bench of folk music in his catalog. He loved that, and he collected it and would incorporate it in any new composition. It was Andre Segovia, the great Andre Segovia, a guitarist that um, uh, you know made Rodrigo's music famous. Yeah, he said, you know, you should really, you know, all this folk stuff is great, but you should, you, you should try writing a guitar concerto. And he goes, well, golly, I guess I will. So uh, when they when they premiere it, it's Segovia playing the guitar, and it's Ponce on the podium. Nineteen forty eight, I believe, was the premiere date, and I had to wonder at the end of the first movement if he actually wrote out all these notes. Or if he just wrote on the score, go off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go you off, know, sis. Right, for about three minutes or something. Because there is something in his playing here that I'm going, are we hearing orchestral jam band music in this mm. moment? Mm. Is, was this set up in the in the mid-1900s by Manuel Ponce? Give a little bit of a listen here to what Andre Segovia is playing at the end of the first movement here. interesting from you know the classically trained perspective i don't know that i hear uh, obviously i hear a lot of notes but i'm thinking more about the lines i'm i'm hearing linear phrases right, that right right i'm sure ponce wrote down you know because it's all within scales and keys and and works through the uh the modulations of the way you know music works mm-hmm. in in a very clever way and it's great to uh hear it on guitar but I, I know what you mean. It, 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 it does, you know, it, it wouldn't be too far-fetched to think that Ponce was like, girl, just play some notes right here and, and, and we'll meet you at bar 387. I, right, I was, I was half joking. Oh, and, you, that, and that's a great point because the way that the orchestra creeps back up in, again, it was like they just sort of slowly turned the volume up and they're like in it with him again before they finish up. Now, I think it, it has to be stated. So when we talk about um, Andre Segovia, and you mentioned the name uh, Rodrigo, Joaquin Rodrigo, these were Spanish guitarists. These were Spanish folks, but Manuel Ponce was a Mexican composer correct you know so when we talk about hispanic heritage month you know hell when you talk about uh mexican food people act like they're getting confused about you know uh 
Spanish-speaking nations in the Americas versus Spain. But Manuel right. Ponce was very much a Mexican composer. Much of the he music was. may have sounded, uh, and of course, was obviously inspired by Spanish guitar, but he was indeed uh, a composer of the Americas, uh, a Hispanic composer, as it were, a Mexican composer. The reason why I brought that in is because the Rodrigo does tend to get most of the guitar attention yep. in concerto form. Mm -hmm. And there are some really great guitar concertos out there that I think deserve more attention. And the fact that this is near the anniversary of the premiere of Concerto del Sur by Ponce, it was a natural. And Andre Segovia, come on. And there's music. some, you know, there's some tea the in the in the history of uh, Western classical music <laughs> in Mexico. M maybe I'm getting my stories mixed up, but you know, you had um, Chavez, the composer and right. orchestra leader Chavez, and I think he and Ponce were collaborating for a while and formed the first uh, orchestra <laughs> down there in Mexico, and then fell out, and yep. stopped talking and yep. stuff. Anyway, yep. child, it's drama everywhere. <laughs> it's juicy stories everywhere. But we here talking about, you know, what Beethoven ate for lunch and ate. You know, oh four or whatever. There's some, you know, in, mm. in addition to the music actually having some uh, juice to it, if you dig deep enough in the repertoire and reframe, you're thinking about classical music. Even the history of the genre can be. I mean, that's yeah. that's a reality show. Chavez versus Ponce. You know, the <laughs> the, the maestros, or you know, I could see that it could now. be a drunk history. <laughs> That'd be a great drug history. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, happy uh, Hispanic. Heritage Month. That's, that's uh, now some really great music. through September 15th. Yep. Still going on. Yep, really great. All right, well, I mentioned earlier that uh, I went to, again, the, the theater on Saturday. Thank you. But I also uh, went to a choir concert. Uh, it was conducted by Dr. Alexander Lloyd Blake, and he was there to guest conduct uh, two local ensembles, the Minnesota Chorale and Border Crossing I used to, it used to be very easy for me to just matter of factly say, oh, well, I don't typically go for choir concerts or choral music isn't usually my thing. But I have to say, I'm, I'm getting further and further away from that reality because this concert was really breathtaking in many ways. I mean, choirs, when they sound good, they sound really good. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're, we're so used to maybe hearing kids' choirs, or I don't know what we're used to, but just the level of intonation and just the the spirit of the music. It was a, it was a very um, activist-centered concert with works that uh, spoke to police brutality and um, immigration issues and, um, and all sorts of stuff. The piece I want to bring in sort of reflects on the issue of global warming. It's a really incredible work by a composer named Joseph Trapanese. That sounds like a rapper's <laughs> name, mm -hmm. Joseph Trapanese, but uh, it's a, a two-movement uh, work. And the first of those movements is called We Know. A while ago, maybe even in... Um, season one, you brought in a piece of music that utilized what we call a music theory, a hocket, where you have a, a single it. melody, yep. but in, in different voices. Well, this piece we know utilizes that. And it was just so incredible to hear that hocket sung so uh, cleanly and in tune as you're looking at the lyrics, all the lyrics were in the program. It was it was a really incredible experience for me. This performance uh, by Tonality um, was uh, produced in 2020, so it's one of those virtual performances. Mm -hmm. You can still hear the hocket here, but it will never compare to what I experienced in uh, in real life. So anyway, shout out to uh, Border Crossing. 
and Minnesota Chorale for your incredible performance of this work by Joseph Trapanese, the first movement of it here called We Know. This recording uh, comes from Tonality, uh, the group led by Alexander Lloyd Blake. We'll take a listen to a little bit of the opening of it here. You know, when, nice. you, when, you, when you have about 20 men, you know, singing those, you know, you, you can kind of feel the room rumbling. And mm. what, what an incredible instrument is the human voice. You know, I'm, as an instrumentalist, I spend a lot of my time, you know, in, in that world. But this concert, you know, A, definitely inspired me to go to more choir concerts. I can't wait to go really? to, to the next one. Mm. But, you know, B, just digging into what that repertoire is generally. I don't even know, you know, I, I, I can name, you know, a few of the more famous contemporary uh, choral composers. I think Eric Whitaker is somewhere way up there at the top of many people's list. Yeah. But, you know, works works like this that really speak to the moment, you know, speak to equity issues and world issues, you know, all the way, you know, across to climate change, which you know, I'm paying more attention to the the older I get. It plays a, a yeah. big role into, you know, why me and Dell have decided to stay in this part of the country yeah. and not move to a coastal place or anything. Anyway, incredible work there. Um, the New Collective Consciousness is the name of the entire piece. The first movement of it is titled We Know. Really, really, really enjoyed um in uh being at that concert. You know, the the ensemble border crossing. Um, they're going to be playing over here on the west side of St. Paul, you know, my neighborhood, nice. uh, singing with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra in a number of community concerts. Nice. You know, when I get the mailer and I see, OK, here go the orchestra playing the same old thing. Of course, I'm not going. But when I when I see ensembles like Border Crossing, who, mm-hmm. you know, are so dedicated to activist work and conversation, when I see their name in the mix. That's what gets me there, you mm-hmm. know. So in addition to programming shifts, I think that we need to, you know, talk about collaborations and what sort of collaborations will pique someone's interest and and get them into a concert hall or a program or something. Anyway, really, really enjoyed listening to some choir music this week. So I encourage each and every one of you to check out uh, some of that choral repertoire as well, especially this piece by Joseph Trapanese. All right, well, we're getting to our third movement, and I am extremely, extremely excited to um, have been able to chat with Brian Raphael Neighbors. Brian Neighbors is a contemporary living composer, a black composer from down south, and he has premieres going all over the place. Um, one of his upcoming uh, premieres is Upon Daybreak. It's going to be premiered by the Berkeley Symphony. Brian also has a concerto for Hammond organ that he's premiering down in his uh in his home city uh, nice. I think in November I'm going to try to go to that concert you know because church wow. church organ 
in the South and orchestra. And, you know, it's going to be some people in the crowd that, you know, aren't typically at those concerts. Mm. I, somebody's going to pull a tambourine out of their pocketbook. <laughs> That's just going to happen. Anyway, Brian Raphael Neighbors is doing incredible things out here in the world of composition. And I think we had a pretty great conversation that I'm happy to share with y'all to get us into our conversation. I wanted to share one of Brian Raphael Neighbors' Guitar pieces, since we were just talking about guitar, it's a really mm -hmm. beautiful work called Reflection. So it's uh, performed here by Evan Tosher, and uh, we're going to listen to a bit of the end of it here to get us into my conversation with the one and only Brian Raphael Neighbors. Hope y'all enjoy <laughs> I'm just a, a kid from Birmingham, Alabama. I'm real Southern. <laughs> this was just like, like there's, I, I don't want to say there's no reason for me to be here, but there is so much that was probably against uh, me actually doing this. Mm. So when knowing that the creator kind of bestowed this upon me and I had the support of my parents and I was just blessed the whole way around. So I don't know, that beginning really allowed me to have sort of uh, empathy for, you know, everything that I see and everywhere that I go and and just remind me to uh, to maintain a humble spirit everywhere mm. I go because I, I don't have to be here. I don't have to be in this position to communicate ideas of, of acceptance and togetherness and all of this stuff. I, I view it as a charge. So when I go into these spaces, um, it means so much to me every time. Because uh, I get to meet folks that uh, get blessed, uh, hopefully, by this music every time. But uh, other than that, just seeing people dedicated to what I have to say and, and present it is fabulous. Um, it just it puts a stir in my spirit to keep going every mm -hmm. single time. You mentioned the rehearsal process. I, I imagine, <laughs> and we're not going to call anybody out, of course, but I imagine <laughs> along the way, that first rehearsal was a little shaky. What, what's it like to hear your music performed not as you <laughs> envisioned it, especially at the beginning <laughs> of the process? Absolutely. I try to get everything as clear on the page as I can make it. <laughs> and they mostly get it, especially if it's a, a great orchestra. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, as a composer, you know the quirks. Like there are some runs and riffs, you know, that come definitely from our culture that I have to say, okay, you need to put a little bit more stank on that. Or <laughs> instead of saying that, you know, because they may not understand it in those terms, I may have to go back and say, well, try to nuance, you know, this particular phrase in this way. And at this point in the phrase, give a little bit more of a dynamic contrast. And then somehow it just magically sort of works. But it's almost like you have to change the way that you communicate these things in order to make it happen. Like in the church, you know, I'll be in the organ. It's like, no, put a little more stack on that chord. Like, hold that thing out. Uh -huh. You know, <laughs> there's a whole like Southern dialect uh, of like uh, communication. Sometimes it's just with eyeballs and a look. But then in, in different worlds, it's almost like I had to uh, learn how to 
process and, and communicate the exact same ideas, the exact same sort of spiritual energy of going out to the players. Um, and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I won't say it's a struggle, but you definitely have to, um, you have to do more thinking. Um, and I, I've had moments where it can be just like a note or two, because I, my chords can be very jazzy sometimes. And I have an orchestral musician. Do you mean a C sharp or a C natural here? And mm -hmm. I'm like, uh, first of all, <laughs> whatever's written, because there yeah. are so many harmonies that um, I don't want to mess up my jazziness. I'm like, there are chords. This is not your typical like C major chord. I'm trying to do something special. Maybe you're a flat five. Maybe you're a sharp nine. It's like, play what you see. I promise you I will correct it if I hear it, because when I'm composing, I'm like, yo, this harmony has to be correct from the first time. I'm so detailed with every step that I'm like, and I'm learning not to be offended by that kind of stuff, but yeah, it happens. Yeah, yeah I had uh, Lemmy Pulliam on the show a few weeks ago, and he was talking about the vocal squall that the black church <laughs> folks know well, but, you know, the conservatory may not know. You know, you have me thinking about that when you talk about culture. Does that impact what you put on the page? Are there times where you're like, well, you know, if this was the black church, I could just write this down and they will understand what I mean. But, you know, such and such symphonic orchestra isn't going to get it. D does does that impact your process thinking about those things? Mm, the musical content stays exactly the same, okay. but I just spend time just trying to work out, well, how can I put this on the page uh, where it can be understood? and then carried out. But, you know, as far as just like what comes to my head, I'm like, no, this is going to page. This is me. This is my identity. This is what I got to say. Mm -hmm. I'm representing so many folks. I'm representing my own culture. And that would be just a slap in the face to every ancestor that didn't suffer. Maybe I'm a little <laughs> bit more sensitive to it because I had parents who grew up in like segregationist laws and all this yeah. stuff. But, um, yeah, I just try to uh, represent it the best I can notation wise. But yeah, the content is exactly what it would be in the church. Yeah, you mentioned your parents. I want to talk a little bit about your upbringing. Your bio sure. lists a charming Southern upbringing. <laughs> I'm I'm from the South, you know. I'm 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 from Memphis, and I understand that there are a lot of charming things about it. I also understand my history, especially the history of Birmingham, where oh, yeah. you're from. I, I wonder if you could say more to you know this idea of a charming Southern experience, considering the perception that a lot of people have about the South, or even the lived experiences that people have about the South. Absolutely, um, charming. Thinking about just all the generations that came before, it's just make the city kind of the cultural and banking boom that it did maybe in late 80s into the 90s, all the way through the thousands. Um, and growing up, you know, in the 90s, it was a very nice sort of cosmopolitan, delightful city to live in. Um, and a lot of things were starting to move and, and happen and still are now, thankfully. But um, of course, growing up in that city, you get bombarded with the history. Um, yeah. I grew up um, pretty much 99% Black folks everywhere from grade school. And then when I got to undergrad, it was a complete opposite. So I had mm -hmm. to <laughs> change my whole you know, way of thinking into navigation. I think it's made me a chameleon in, in some sorts, but without code switching, because I just can't. I just will not. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's interesting because my parents were like, um, this is what it is. And in school, we literally learned everything because we had to it's like how can you be in this city and not know and so i remember my father he has a lot of trust issues 
just with uh, people of the white <laughs> spectrum mm-hmm. to this day. And sometimes I have to reassure him that, you know, things are changing, but I understand completely because a lot of folks are still, you know, on that. Um, and when he goes into these different spaces, he'll come to a premiere and I can see not not that he's holding back, but that there is still some some tension. There's some uncomfortability uh, with with that world um, in ways that I've gotten a chance to explore a little further um, because they saw some very interesting things. My daddy tells me stories all the time about how he was you know, in grade school uh, in middle school. And people from off the streets will come in, start saying, everybody want freedom. And it's like everybody would just have to get up and go because there were like older teenagers that were brave and just went out there and marched and all this stuff. And I'm like, wow. And I'm like, my parents actually went through this. This is crazy. And people think that these uh, things are so far removed from our generation. And I'm like, no, the people who gave me life actually saw this. And then my grandparents, it's crazy. I know my paternal grandparents in particular, like my grandmother came from Mississippi, like uh, Mississippi Delta, like Belzoni, which is like mosquito country, you know. And then also... uh, my daddy's uh, daddy, my paternal grandfather, he came from uh, Black Belt region, Alabama, and had to leave because of some other scary racial stuff. And so they kind of met each other and, and then got married, moved to the city and uh, after the, the Second World War. And they saw all kinds of stuff. So my, my grandfather was a part of that generation that was helped uh, building things through uh, the steel industry that was still going at the time. And uh, this is definitely one of the things that inspired, of course, a lot of my music, but I just wrote like a symphony for Birmingham that's being premiered in October um, called Letters from Birmingham. And so it goes from that that journey of the steel mill past and um, dealing with the different racial divides of even the workers who were like working in the same place and how they would live in, in separate quarters and have to do all these different things. Um, and then knowing we had like a jazz scene called Tuxedo Junction, and that's what black folks would go after they get off work, knowing that my grandfather was probably there and that stuff happened. I need to go back and check more of my my history in terms mm-hmm. of that. But it is just so um, gratifying to me um, when I think about just the weight of the history. And I feel such a charge um, on my life uh in a way to tell uh, our story, my story, uh, in a way that gives uh, light to others' uh, struggles and, and allows them to kind of see their own breakthroughs uh, just through my own truth. And so um, I dedicate a lot of these things to different parts of my family um, and my friends and just all of us who came up in that. Um, it is just an honor uh, to be able to write this music in this way. I wonder if you have uh, learnings or takeaways from the journey of getting folks like your father into the concert hall. Surely at the very, I mean, I'll, I'll speak, you know, to my parents, my mom, especially, you know, she'd be like, I'm not trying to be in there with all those white folks. Da, 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 blah, blah. <laughs> you know, I, I imagine those conversations <laughs> took place certainly at the beginning of your journey. Definitely. Uh, it wasn't too bad. Uh, it's interesting, <laughs> I guess, because my mother's a nurse and she had to work with all kinds of people. But my folks were uh, generally sort of open to it. 
Um, but you can still see a little bit of the hesitancy when we get questions. It's like, so how did he get in the music? And da, 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 da. <laughs> and a lot of times I have to deal with this. A lot of times at uh, events that I have to attend as a composer. And it's like, so what's your story? How did you? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Of all people. Yeah. <laughs> of all people. And I'm like, let me tell you, straight up, I had parents who supported me and I came up in the church. Ain't no shame in my game. Um, but they are have been just so embracing and they've been able to grow uh, in many ways uh, because of just what I've been doing. And it's expanded their horizons as well. And, oh, man, it's just great to see it. Um, but at times I love to bring my family because they always, especially my sister, she carries a Southern energy that's just like, and it's like that strong black woman that's like, I ain't changing for nobody. I'm going up in here. I'm going to get me, you know, go up to this table, give me a little candid bacon, give me a mm-hmm. drink and I'm going to chill out. You know, and when a lot of people end up meeting my sister, they want her to come back. So, oh, we just love your sister. She just, you know, <laughs> and she takes the tension out the room, even though I try to bring my whole self, you know, but mm-hmm. I still have to have a professional sort of demeanor when I walk into these places and I, I show up, you know, as Brian, the professor, composer, whatever. Um, I'm still me, but she just is just unabashedly just <laughs> wild. And I love it. Um, and it just, it makes me feel a lot better. Um, as far as getting the rest of the folks into the concert hall that may have not been there before, I try to write music that speaks directly uh, to the people and sometimes extremely uh, specifically directly, if that even makes sense. But um, I know I have a Hammond organ concerto coming up, which I'm so excited to uh, (laughs) premiere with my hometown orchestra, Alabama Symphony. So it's going to be real cool. Um, And I know folks who know the Hammond in the Black church, but what I love about this instrument is it transcends so many just American foundational classical genres. You know, you think of rock, you think of R&B, you think of neo soul, you always hear that instrument in the background. You think of the kind of spiritual foundation that so many of us get uh, growing up in that environment. And so for me to write this dissertation, um, I was like, I have to do this. Like, I don't see anybody else doing it. I don't know if anybody else can or if they are willing, but I like, I got to do it. So I wrote it in a way that uh, goes back into all of my history with the instrument. My mother started on it when she was 13. And so she just hopped on there one day and I did it around the same age. So knowing that I was in the womb, gestating and developing Mm -hmm. in her belly, feeling these vibrations coming out. And it was that particular sound that has sustained sort of not only my core spiritual foundation and how I connect with the, the muse, if you will, to produce everything I write, but this is a real homecoming for me. And to have the opportunity to play it myself is a little scary because I'm literally like, getting orchestral parts out i'm yeah. teaching every day i'm like i don't know how i'm gonna do this but you know uh it's gonna be great to see folks in there from all walks of life because of the connecting power of just something that was founded you know on this land here you know uh, the sound that was so um important to so many people in so many ways i just found it just gratifying i wonder if you think much about 
uh, the culture shift within concert hall spaces uh, when it comes to things like this Hammond organ concerto, I'm thinking about many of the people I know. The tradition of the concert hall says to sit down until it's done and clap when mm -hmm. it's time, but they feet might say something else, you know? Oh, yes. Or they, oh, yes. Or they, or they hands might, well, <laughs> might say something else. Do, are, are these, you know, are you, do you see yourself as bringing in more than just new music, but new culture and, and new yeah. environment? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Because, you know, I, that third movement, I had to go in. <laughs> I had to take it straight to church. And I'm like, there's moments, you know, how you have the praise break sections where yeah. you'll sing some da 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 boom, pop, 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 mm -hmm. pop, pop. I got folks all in the orchestra clapping, and I just know, because <laughs> I got all my family and friends coming to this, that they go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, y'all better bring the tambourines. We're going to set that place on fire. And I'm just like, even when I write pieces that don't have, you know, those kind of direct leanings, there's always that sense of sort of uh, spirituality there. Um, um, and I always encourage, like, if you feel, if the spirit so moves you, you know, I feel it more as an honor that somebody would yell out. Because mm -hmm. I'm like, it's just one performance, you know, out of hopefully many, but I'm like, Unless, you know, even if we're doing a live recording, unless you screaming directly into the microphone, I don't care. <laughs> I'm like, holla, hoop, do whatever you got to do. Um, and I try to incorporate that in so much of my music. Now, these days, I'm writing a lot for drum set and I'm having people stomp and clap. And, you know, my next thing is try to get orchestral members to uh, scream and yell. I don't know if I can do all that, but we'll see how it works. <laughs> works out but uh yeah it's great to also have like conductors that support you in that um i've yeah. been really grateful to meet people like robert spano who's like a compositional uh sort of father figure to me and i was like okay i'm writing a piece on this african legends for his first season with uh, fort worth symphony and this is just wild to me i was like oh can i have them like scream out at some point <laughs> mm -hmm. he's like i don't know maybe if We'll try it. I'm like, okay. Cause I'm like, you know, this is like a cultural honoring for me. And I'm like bringing dances and rhythms from several different parts of the continent. And maybe it might be too much for, for them to handle. Maybe I can just let the percussion section do it. Maybe just because they're used to doing things like that. But I kind of want to still push the boundaries on those things. It's like, if I'm this kind of composer from this background, you play all this other music from all sorts of folks. And I'm like, okay, not only does the culture need to change within audience members coming, but the culture has to really change within the ensemble itself and develop a toolkit that allows folks to really understand the gravity of representation everywhere through the music on stage and how it's communicated to the audience. You teach people <laughs> by literally, you know, playing and, and, and singing to the best of your ability uh, in a way that's that's convincing. Um, and I always, even in like my rhythms for drum set, I don't want it just to be the the one-two beat that's kind of just yeah. the cliche. Oh, you made a nice, I'm like, no, we need to go in. But I want to go in. And yeah. I work on that thing until it's exactly how I heard it. You know, when I went to the club or when I went to church, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be authentic. Maybe you can create that space by uh, softly accompanying the conductor as he's talking to the, you know, uh, yes. musicians or going through the recorders, you know, giving that little organ backdrop, you know? Yes, absolutely. They'll be like, what is he doing? Time is my, it's what the, 
Yeah, but but see, the, the the black church folks will know what you're doing, you know. They'll know exactly. <laughs> yes. I, I've been thinking about things for like encores too after this concerto because I'm just like, maybe I should just bring my mama on the stage and just let her play. <laughs> him. Just, just let her just show out. And I thought about getting a couple of my um, musician friends that play different churches around Birmingham. I was like, let's just jam out for a minute instead of, you know, because what would an encore be? you know, for the Hammond, you know, what do I play? What do I say? You know, you end the violin concerto and it's just like, oh, Caprice number 24 from Paganini. Let's go. You know, right, right. something like that. I love those sort of nuances that are introduced from new int- instruments coming into the space. Well, the concert hall audience might not be used to sticking around for an extra hour, hour and a half because folks yes. feet are doing <laughs> something, but I guess we'll see. So it's, it's not it's not just praise breaks. You have a, a piece of music that's going to be premiered soon called Upon Daybreak. I really appreciated mm-hmm. learning about it and reading uh, the Maya Angelou poem that helped inspire it. You know, a lot of people have a vision of world peace. You know, in my in my Buddhism, we talk about Kosen Rufu. It, 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 there are many mm-hmm. different ways of thinking about a, a world without hate, a world without violence. I wonder what that world looks like to you. What were you envisioning when you were writing Upon Daybreak? Definitely. I was thinking about if true freedom had a sound, mm. what in the world would it sound like um, in a world where everyone could express themselves to the fullest of their ability, you know, love who they want to love, believe what they want to believe, but there is a, a oneness that a deep understanding of of who we are um, as a species and honoring things that we know and don't know about our existence in the universe. Um, And I was like, wow, how can I really allow, what sound can I create? Because there's so many sounds that you can draw from. It almost seems overwhelming, but um, I had to just go back almost introspectively and think about you know, um, how I as an artist, as as a composer would interpret these sounds um, and dive into it from a perspective of just, okay, let me take this poem a line at a time and just try to zero in on these really interesting moments that she has uh, throughout. Uh, I love my Angelo's work, but there is a, a line in there that says, when we come to it, oh, it, and every time there's a refrain, and this, I kept thinking about these uh, moments of explosion in the music, um, and I came up with this sort of freedom theme that bursts out of the orchestra and it saturates the listener in almost every section of the piece and mm-hmm. it gets transformed in a way. Um, I always like to view myself as a composer that really tries to lean in on melody. And I always like to say, well, I'm trying to bring melody back. You know, I love a good soundscape, but there's something about a line of music, how it holds the listener's attention. I like to tell my students, it's like you're crafting a a screenplay and your motives and your melodies, they're your characters. Mm -hmm. And when you bring them back in different contexts, you get to put the plot twist, you get to um, surprise people. It's almost like, not like you're playing with people's emotions, but their uh, expectations and, and anticipatory thoughts about what could happen. And then it's like, okay, it's almost like you're watching a movie and it's like, okay, this girl going to die in the next scene. She has to die. <laughs> I know she's going to die because yeah. she messed up here and blah, blah, blah. And then when someone turns it around and then they make it out, it's like, oh my God, same thing with the music. So I tried to come at it that way, thinking about, um, hmm, how can I make this melody as free and colorful and unabashedly just powerful as I can? Um, this piece is uh, really about 
um, a, a bigger sort of triptych that I was thinking of. I have two other sort of perpetual motion pieces where, that it kind of carries you through. There's a lot of breath sounds and a lot of beatboxing in the flute, uh, which I love to include um, throughout and just throughout any wind instrument. And there's always these little uh, sort of motives, even micro motives that kind of pull you through. So this is kind of the, the culmination of that, um, that the moment like when we come to it, you hear like whooshes of breath followed by this giant melody that comes out um that kind of propels you into freedom if you will i hope that answers the question oh absolutely but i also think about though is the fact that there's so much music that we honor and that we need that was born from struggle you know what yeah would be, yeah what would be the spiritual if we didn't have the stories that go go along with that i wonder if there's some sort of balance or trade-off you think about creating music for a, a world filled with peace while honoring the music that was born from from that struggle especially considering you know your geography and your history with the black church and all of those things absolutely oh that's such a good question <clears throat> i think about it in every context even if i'm not you know writing like a setting of something um that is dealing with lynching or mm -hmm. dealing with like uh, intense sort of trauma. Um, I carry that spirit with me, even if it's just sort of a general piece about freedom or, or malice. I want people to hear the, the love and the spirit within the music, um, considering even after knowing, you know, where I came from, or even, you know, if they don't know where I come, it's like, there's something about this music that was born out of, it was, it's something special. I really want to maintain that kind of, musical integrity. Um, but before I begin every piece, there is a word of prayer that is said. I have mm -hmm. to get, I like candles when I write, uh, burn a lot of incense. There is something about conjuring the energy of those who, uh, who suffered in unimaginable ways. Um, and, and knowing that I'm literally from that, I'm from, yeah. you know, people who just decided to just stay down there and just, or people who couldn't get out and just work it out. I mean, all of us, you know, as sparse sad as we are, even through like the great migration, there is just such strength in every single branch that we've taken um, from being uh, in this country. But I try to carry just the spirit of that with me. I think about, you know, my grandparents, I think about um, other uh, wonderful figures in my life who I know have suffered just uh, to me personally and also just the the, the history there. And uh, I love it when Maya Angelou says, you know, she's like, I come as one, but I stand as 10,000. Mm. All 10,000 of us are allowing the pen to write the music. And I'm just like, y'all, I need y'all to come go with me. And it's almost like every time it writes itself. I think John Adams said something like, I feel like a child every time I begin this process over again. And sometimes I do. But usually once I sit down and I tell my students this too, try to get inside of yourself and edit in your brain so that you don't have to keep scratching things out. Don't put it on the page unless you know for a fact that that's what it is. And I know for me, I have a personal relationship with this energy, with these spirits. And I'm like, guide me, y'all, guide me, you know, and they know exactly how to put things down or work through me in a way that allows the music to be just as powerful, you know, and authentic, no matter, you know, uh, what the subject matter.
Mm -hmm. And of course, having that relationship with the ancestors, with the muses, is different than having the relationship with the gatekeepers and the, yes. and the orchestra managers. <laughs> and all. So how, how, how have you traversed that over the course of your career? What, what, what's it like building those relationships with the ensembles who are playing your music? Absolutely. I just try to treat everybody right, just do right. But at the same time, <laughs> without compromise of, of where I come from and, and my musical integrity, I've worked with folks who have just been, most folks have been extremely um, honorable and respectful uh, just because they want to do the right thing. Um, and hopefully not to check off a box. Right. Because now these days, especially after the pandemic and George Floyd and all this stuff, you know, uh, it empowered me and a lot of my colleagues to look at what was going on and be like, okay, what are you doing this for? And now I'm like checking the history of like mm -hmm. <laughs> their performances and how much, you know, sort of DEI work have you really, really done? And has it been honest work? And can I see sort of the growth and trajectory of it? So when you asked me to do this project, you know, are you really, do you view me as the safe black option? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because I'm polite and charming and all these things, you know, or, or is there something in the music that really strikes you? And so when I have these initial conversations, you know, I'm asking questions too to just really feel out what's going on there. Um, but normally, you know, I just come as myself and folks are just, you know, very, very uh, respectful of, you know, just where I come from and, and what I want to say. And maybe it's just because I'm like, we're all in this together and I'm trying to say it. 30,000 different ways in every piece, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, definitely uncompromisingly. Uh, I, so it sounds like the re relationship is initiated by the ensembles themselves. I'm sure there are a lot of people who just don't know the process of a composer getting a piece of music performed. I guess specifically yeah. with a, Upon Daybreak, did the Berkeley Symphony approach you or how did how did this happen? How did this start? Yeah, it I will say 2019 especially was like a huge blessing for me. All the stuff just kind of started happening um, when I got out of school, like I had done the earshot with the Detroit Symphony. And then mm -hmm. I ended up getting to the composer lab with Nashville and I ended up meeting all these different people. I said, God, this is such a blessing. Um, and then I wrote a piece for Atlanta that fall. And so um, the artistic administrator at the time was like, oh, there's this new program with New Music USA. Um, it's called Amplifying Voices. We used to have uh, an assistant conductor here. His name is Joseph Young. And he wanted to know if you would be interested because we recommended you after hearing, you know, your work performed with us. Absolutely. I said, this is incredible. After I learned like um, what the program was about and how impactful this will be for all of us um, going forward, just knowing that you have all these orchestras giving repeat performances and saturating uh, these spaces with all of this incredible music from these perspectives and stories. And I'm like, this is incredible. And the fact that it came about this way and it started like right before the pandemic and I've had mm -hmm. a very close relationship with Berkeley ever since then, getting to go there multiple times, being in the community, and uh, working with Joseph and just other elements um, of the sort of orchestral staff going out into um, the community and talking to different people, learning uh, just about their own cultural space and um, how quirky and accepting that part of the country is. And yeah. it's very interesting, you know, very different from <laughs> kind of how I came about. And so it's, it's very... Um, 
once again, very gratifying to go out and just be amongst the people. Um, and I like to do this everywhere I go and just try to inject myself in that way. And it allows us all to do that. And what I really love about it is um, Vanessa Reed, she's been so wonderful in creating these sort of, of learning labs where we get to talk to our orchestral administrators about what we need these days yeah. um, and about the programming we want to see so that it's not just about the new music, but about all the folks who have been ignored for decades. And yeah. I'm just like, man, I have lists upon lists and folks that I'm learning about through my friends that I can share. It's just a web of, of interconnected uh, of, or interconnectivity that allows us to spread our wings even further. Yeah, I don't guess I realized that you are a, a, a ACO earshot alum. I mean, it's, yes, I, I, I think it's great that we have these organizations that propel composers in in that way. That's really phenomenal. I have one more question, but uh, before I throw it at you, how can folks learn more about you? How can they uh, check out one of your upcoming premieres and engage what you're doing? Absolutely. Everything is on my website, briannabers.com. If you type my name in, uh, Brian Neighbors Composer, it'll come right up. Um, and everything else, I'm pretty active on social media. I try to be um, on my Instagram, Facebook, but uh, I'm not as active on there as I probably am on my site. But I try to posting everything and keep it updated. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, back to that poem that inspired uh, Upon Daybreak by Maya Angelou, she describes, you know, in detail so much violence and just the, the things that are happening around mm -hmm. the world. And I feel like we're seeing that today. Think about the Middle East, Ukraine, what's been going on on the African continent forever, even here in the United States. I think we can idealistically think about music and music making as that peacemaker. But when you're in the face of actual war, actual destruction, it's mm -hmm. easy to get disillusioned. Do you think that music can actually have an impact on things like sex trafficking and the war in Ukraine and all of these just hor horrifying things we're dealing with in real time? Mm, that's a very good question. I hope that it can. Uh, and it's always like music has to be after all the trauma has happened to kind of heal everyone. And you just pray that when you submit these pieces and that they get performed, that people have changes of heart. Um, but I know it's kind of hard. I think we're just the, the Band-Aid people. It's a mm. shame to say that. Um, but we just hope it encourages more people, like uh, folks to get involved, you know, in the fight against these things, whether it be like folks who want to, good people that want to go into law enforcement or some type of um, trade that allows them to you know, uh, be a part of the resistance to all of these different issues. It's just like, we're the people who come in and, and try to encourage uh, folks to to get moving and just do what they can from their corner of the world to try to make it a better world. We may not be able to stop things um, as they're happening in real time or even right before they're happen happening, mm -hmm. but, you know, maybe somebody heard something, maybe somebody, you know, saw a piece of music well, saw a piece, heard a piece of music, <laughs> but heard something that put a quickening in their spirit that stopped them from making a certain decision. Um, something that was foundational, revolutionary. You know, if if we can be a part of that, and that's why I think it's the representation through the orchestra or through whoever's performing the music, and in the audience is so important because it allows people from all walks of life to really, you know, um, embrace from their own perspective and their own world. If you got you know, 
uh, the drug dealer from off the street. And one of us writes a piece, you know, about folks dealing with this kind of issue in the street and who want to get out, who want to live a better life. And you like bring that level of like spiritual awareness and, and a quickening, you know, in some piece or some concert hall. It goes back to like folks like Big Frida who down the street. I'm in Baton Rouge because I teach at LSU. Uh, and thinking about her being with the Louisiana field, I'm so mad because I think I have a premiere on that now. I can't go. <laughs> There are so many people that will benefit. It's like, no, nah, we don't know nothing about this orchestra. We ain't never been to this concert hall, but Big Frida there. Let's go to Big Frida concert. Same thing. You can get an unimaginable amount of rappers, people from all walks of life to be that representation through the music to speak directly, you know, to these people in a way that may stop them from doing something or encourage them to get involved somehow. Yeah. Johnson there at the Hammond B3 organ. I wanted to bring that in. I know that uh, Brian was talking about Big Frida mm-hmm. at the end there, you know, talking about how impactful that's going to be down in Louisiana. But I can't help but to think about this Hammond organ concerto. I mean, I'm going to do everything I can. You know, uh, Nina Simone said, Mississippi goddamn, you know, Alabama got me so upset. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I'm going to be down in Alabama on November 16th if I can, because Ooh. that that sounds like it's just going to be an incredible experience. And then I think about how um, idiomatic that sound is to black culture, you know, culture, cultures across the South, you know, that across racial lines, but certainly, you know, idiomatic to the black church experience. It's an easy win for yeah. the orchestra because yeah. folks are going to be there. He's going to have folks who can't wait to hear it. It's really going to be an incredible experience. You know, one of the um, other things that, you know, our conversation made me think about was just really impactful performance experiences, you know, the performance experience that makes you want to come back or changes your perspective on a certain thing. I have Mm. a number of pieces in that category. I wonder if anything comes to mind for you, a performance, a live performance that you once attended that forever changed you, that you still think about as a type of pivot point in your life, just based on a live performance? The first orchestral conference, uh, conference first orchestral con- concert that I went to had Sasson's organ concerto on it. Okay. And I'd never heard it before. So when you got to so the final on movement. The, on the, yeah. And they start raising <laughs> that thing up out of the pit, you know, the, mm-hmm. the organ up. I'm like, whoa. Oh, so you're like, go. okay, something to happen. <laughs> and that thing rattled your chest like no recording can. So mm-hmm. yeah, that that I was like, okay, I get it. I get I get the 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 allure of the live performance. I get it. Yep. And then you had Saint Songs from the Grave when um the movie Babe came oh, out. He copied you know? my whole fucking flow. <laughs> <laughs> but it but it is nice to, nice catch. <laughs> but it is nice to be able to tell that story, at least on the radio. I would always tell, you know, say something about the movie Babe mm. when the organ symphony came along because that last movement is sampled throughout the movie. Anyway, and do folks even know the movie Babe anymore? Are, are we aging <laughs> ourselves or something? I don't know. Anyway, that little that little pig 
big. I know I had uh, the grown folks in my family crying when we got the VHS uh, tape years ago. So <laughs> that'll do, don't care. Anyway, shout out to Brown Raphael neighbors. Thank you so much for joining us on the Triloquy podcast. And we're going to go ahead and jump into this final movement, the Triloquy movement, where uh, we're going to talk a few numbers, but we're going to get over there with a little music as performed by Lizzo. Let's take a listen here. little bit of Lizzo playing uh, James Madison's flute at the Library of Congress. You know, something everybody's been talking about <laughs> for the past few days. What were your initial reactions of, when you came across that? Do you, what What is the meme called with the guy who can't decide which button to press and yeah. they're both terrible options? <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> On, I could see him sweating over freak out being one of them and the other one being, yes, but about what part? <laughs> say more what do you mean by that well it could be from the direction of hey that flute was played by that's james madison and i just found out about it and i'm outraged <laughs> so have some respect what about the people who would say what about uh folks say, say that said uh, he's a slaver why are you playing a slaver's flute mm-hmm. uh, and other people going off have some respect damn it play wc <laughs> not in this poolank yeah. Is that what it was, Pulek? That's what I heard somebody okay, say. Yeah, I, I couldn't pull it I out. Didn't of it. Re- and that's the thing. Lizzo could have gone out there and played a lot of things, but she played one of y'all's <laughs> pieces of music, okay? <laughs> yeah, but you didn't play the right one of those pieces. Um, I I live. Um, <laughs> the, the part that stresses me out is the fact that folks are like, oh, it's so great to finally hear Lizzo, or, you know, that, that sort of thing. We have heard her trill and say bitch and all that stuff on stage. We know this woman can play the flute, but some people just need to hear that sort of music for it to be affirmed or for them to say, oh, she yeah. can really play the instrument. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to mention that, <laughs> but I didn't want to spend a whole bunch of time with it. What I did want to spend uh, this this movement on, this, this final uh, triloquy movement on, was some data compiled by an organization called Donay. Uh, it's the Equality and Diversity in Global Repertoire Report by Donay Women in Music, hashtag Donay Report 2022. I'll have it linked in the uh, description of this. But long story short, and, and shout out to Dr. Molly McCann, who put this on my rad, uh, radar. She mm-hmm. uh, tagged me on on uh, Twitter. And you know, long story short, you have the organization Donay that took 111 orchestras uh, across, I think, 30 countries and just added up the numbers and said, okay, this is what the orchestras are playing. The report goes into detail about a number of different things, demographics, gender, but what I'm going to focus on today is, you know, the the glaring piece of just evidence that is in the introduction of this report. It says, you know, over again, the 2021-2022 orchestral season, 111 orchestras uh, in different parts of the world, 92.3% of the works performed were written by men of which 87.7 were white men let's just take those numbers okay 
I get so frustrated on a on a regular basis, but when I see the you know, unemotional, just straight up, this is what it is numbers, mm-hmm. it's hard not to have an even greater level of frustration, not out of a hate or a disdain or even a dislike of a certain type of aesthetic or a certain type of composer, but just the fact that that is what's overwhelmingly centered in the space. Mm-hmm. One, one thing that I love about this report is that it doesn't use the phrase people of color. It uses the phrase people of the global majority. You know, so when you frame mm. it in that way, it adds another level of just frustration to the fact that over 90 percent, we're not talking about 50 percent, 60, 70, 80. We're talking about over 90 percent of the music that these orchestras are playing are pieces of music by men over 90 percent. Mm-hmm. What's your reaction to that number? It's a little higher than I thought it would be, especially Same. after everything that's been going on. Same. And especially after all those years we uh, read off that people have been asking, where are the black orchestral musicians? Yeah. So uh, I I would have thought that we would have been under, under 80. At least. At the very least. That's That would have been my thought. It's a little disappointing. But I also have to admit that even though we were tagged in this on Twitter, I didn't read it because I saw some of the comments that you were laying out and your frustration with it. And I went, oh, he's mad. I don't know. But we need this type of work. And, you know, it it reminds me of conversations that I have, you know, off off the mic, but in, in some of my other work about the importance of statistics and statisticians and, you know, all of the data people in, in Western classical music doing this work, because we can sit here and sensationalize the issues and create conversations and that sort of thing. But again, when you're looking at the numbers, that there's no other way to interpret it. There's no, you know, way to skew the yeah. story. 92%. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That's just ridiculous. So what I go to is the responsibility of various people and various groups of people in changing this. I kind of went on a little rant on on Twitter, but I'll return to some of the, the same questions that I asked here. I'm thinking about the orchestral musicians. Are they just okay with it and I almost want to step back a little bit because I understand how it is to be in an organization, especially an orchestral organization with no power. It's not like, you know, as second bassoon of the Knoxville Symphony, I could just go storming into the office and tell the music director, okay, we need to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. I did, you know, my own version of that and some programming, (laughs) you know, uh, things happened, you know, so, and so I think both of those stories are true and have validity. If you're sitting last stand violin, there's not a whole bunch that you can do, you know, in the in the structure of an organization. But you can inspire a conversation that will lead to something. You have to say something. You can't just be okay with it. Of course, we can talk about all of the conductors and what they choose to platform. But I'm also thinking about the arts administrators who have a role to play in this. The audience members who can just you know, maybe not boo, but as you said, walk sigh out. and walk out, you know, grab your pocketbook and walk out. You know, what, what are your ideas on the responsibility of different players in this game to change these statistics that we're seeing? 92% of, of repertoire being written by men, 87, almost 88% um, of that being music written by white men. We there, need to, there must be something. We need to, ch- yeah, we need to change minds higher up the chain. Hmm. 
Because, you know, like most of your music hosts on the radio have very little hand in the music that they press play on, just as the musicians in an orchestra don't have that big of a hand in what makes it onto the program. Yeah. Because, and I've told people in the business, if you think that these conversations aren't happening among musicians on stage, they'd rather not be playing this Mozart or Beethoven or whatever. If you think those conversations aren't happening, you're wrong mm-hmm. because they are. So the conversations need to be happening happening further up the chain. The where, you know, because everybody else is saying that's more than my job's worth. That's a job's worth issue. Do you think folks aren't aware? Because again, we're aware because we have these conversations mm-hmm. every week. But seeing it in print, you know, seeing numbers in the high eighties and low nineties, that hits a different type of way. Do you think a part of the issue is that, you know, programmers, people like um Dada, who we were talking about in the in the first movement, do you think they're just unaware of the extent to which the change needs to happen? Is it a matter of putting these numbers in front of these folks on the on the higher end of the chain or is it something more? I would have to wonder who has seen these numbers, who's paying attention to them, who cares that they're there? Yeah. Hmm. That 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 that's the question. How much do you care? <laughs> that there's a whole bunch of people that are being marginalized. Yeah, and it's not just, again, you're exactly right, it's not just for the sake of it. There are communities and aesthetics and experiences and potential audience members who, you know, the institutions just don't care about. Don't engage. The, the, the people on stage, in the audiences, everyone who plays a role in the maintenance of, of that status quo, it's like they just don't care that, other people and and other things exist. Mm-hmm. What do we do? <laughs> and this is the harder question. What do we do about the people who see those types of numbers and just don't see a problem? Classical music is a white European thing. What do you expect? Of course, this is what the numbers look like. Mm-hmm. Is there any engagement of that attitude or that perspective? Great question. Because I always thought that the, the getting up and walking out being a bigger signal of displeasure because that sends the signal of I'm not even going to engage anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to listen. Yeah, whatever you're playing might be great. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I'm leaving. I hate to say it. I hope I don't sound ridiculous. I don't know who this man is. <laughs> Looking at the concert program, I don't know right. who this man is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you could leave and not miss a thing. Mm-hmm. And, a and, thing. and just like that article said on uh, The Root, uh, the uh, the comment said on that root article, you know, uh, it doesn't look like black folks are missing out on on right. too much. You know? Right. So we've talked before about how you have to wait them out to a, a point of retirement, or they move on to a different role, or something like that. Yeah. But th- there there's there's people that are being groomed into this very way of thinking right now, right? Yeah. I mean, to yeah. carry that idea forward. It's a great question, and I'm not sure that I got an answer that works right yet. And let me just, you know, offer a little bit more context. Again, this is from the report. So, you know, of all of these works that were performed by these 111 orchestras last season, 76.4 of those works were by historical white men. So white men who have passed on. So over three-fourths. <laughs> oh, is that what we're calling yeah, it now? Yeah, historical. Over, <laughs> over three-fourths of the programming are folks who dead. Damn, okay. 11.3% by living white men, 
3.8% by living white women, and 2.3% in this fourth category, historical global majority men. So, you know, before you even get to anybody of color, you know, much less black people, just everybody of color put together, you know, it's just 2.3 and even they all dead. You know, so there's so much work to do. This is why I'm so dedicated these days to platforming the works by uh, living composers. Because, look, if we were talking about 76.4 percent living white men, Mm -hmm. we'd have we'd be having a different conversation. But the ecosystem would look so different that we would have a different way of engaging the conversation. We wouldn't be trying to protect the legacy of Beethoven or the legacy of Chopin. We would just be talking about today's communities and and how they can be engaged. But we're talking about over three-fourths of the programming by folks who are dead. Okay, we can we can beat this horse all day. You know, we talked about the repetition and how that leads to broader awareness of this issue. So I hope that's what this does. Again, shout out to everyone over at Donay. A very special shout out to Dr. Molly McCann, who put this on my radar. I, I, I think she was the um, the the st- statistician. Let me look in the credits here. Just so I'm, I'm making sure I'm honoring her correctly. Yeah, Molly was the uh, data analyst on, on this project. Repetition. I guess that's the 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 theme the, mm. the the ending theme here we were with the re theme earlier <laughs> so you know now we're closing out with repetition so don't get tired of speaking these issues to power don't get tired of repeating yourself or saying the same thing to the same people or getting on folks nerves because that's how we make some change at least that's what it looks like <laughs> is going to be required for us to make this change Huh, 76.4% historical white men. Maybe that'll be the, the title of this opus, historical, historical white, white men. men. Shout out to all of y'all. I hope you're decomposing beautifully. And to those of you who aren't, I'll see you next week.